Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. British Robinson is the president and CEO of the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy. She spent much of her career leading in roles focused on public health, both in the government and nonprofit sectors. She brings that experience to the challenge of literacy. Now, it may surprise you, in the U.S. currently, one in every five adults struggles with low literacy. British is working to encourage and inspire innovative solutions to actually address this challenge. And I am so excited to talk to her today about her work and about her career. British, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here. I am absolutely delighted to have you here. The Barbara Bush Foundation is actually celebrating its 30th anniversary this year, which is really exciting. Talk about how the challenge of literacy has evolved over that period of time. That, that statistic that I read in the intro, one in five, I found pretty surprising. Yeah, when you talk to practitioners and experts and folks that have been in the field, they'll say the number is probably flat, slightly increasing. So the evolution is that the field hasn't evolved. Um, in fact, that the issue is that we still haven't tackled the problem as a society and as a country. Um, And so we have to double down and we have to drill down and we have to figure out how can we reach more people so that everyone in the United States can live in dignity, um, that they can actually read, write, and comprehend so they can navigate their world. What surprised you most about taking on this role? I think the issue itself. I was just stunned and shocked that we're still grappling with this, that that many people in this country are struggling or low literate. It's, it's just stunning and surprising. When you think about all the issues, food insecurity, health issues, you know, HIV and AIDS, cancer, um, I think what people don't even realize is 36 million means that's more people than that are diagnosed annually with cancer or diabetes. Right. I think that's, it's shocking, it's shocking. And when you have that many people, that's about 20% of our population, that many people, that are at this place, what does that do to our economy? How does that affect GDP? It affects health outcomes, et cetera. So it's a real problem. And it's something we need to tackle as a country. So people hear how big this problem of illiteracy is, and they probably have some gut reactions. Oh, it's this or it's that. What are the biggest drivers to illiteracy? And are they what we think they are? The first thing is that it's solvable. So the number is quite daunting, but I think if we can figure out some collective action and look at the problem in a non-siloed way. So I think folks have been doing great work in the field for the last 25, 30 years or so, but we need to bring more voices to the table. We need more collaboration at the table. So not just literacy folks working alone, but starting to work with the health sector, with the financial sector. So looking at things like financial literacy. If somebody can't read a ballot, they can't vote. So how do we work more with with engage the civic community? Um, What do we do about folks that were incarcerated and now are out 
Um, how do we support them? So it's a question of us as the literacy community starting to partner, intentionally partner with other sectors um, to actually get and reach people and get them access to the services that they need. So it is solvable. I think that's the big question, it's solvable. And for us at the Barbara Bush Foundation, I think the biggest issue we have is letting people know, educating the American people that this is a problem and that you can help. When we look at our understanding of things like dyslexia, right? We have a much better understanding of that as a challenge than we did certainly 30 years ago at the point in which the foundation <coughs> launched. How much has our understanding helped to deepen and improve the way we think about this? So that's a great question because the problem is multifaceted. It's not one way, it's not one type of person, it's everyone. It's north, south, east, west, it's black, white, it's immigrant. In fact, it's two-thirds uh, native-born Americans. Everybody thinks it's just an immigration problem. It's not. There are various reasons. Maybe you were a young mother and you had to drop out of high school. Maybe a parent got sick. Maybe a family member died and you had to work at a very young age. Um, maybe you were facing, you know, maybe there was a, a drug addiction issue. Maybe you had a, a small learning disability, but it was never tracked in your school. Maybe you were simply just passed along. There are people in this country that have high school diplomas that cannot read, or they read at a very low level. So it's a multifaceted, kind of multiple reasoning sort of issue. It's not one thing. And the other thing I'd point out is stigma. There's a huge amount of stigma and shame around this issue, and we need to be very careful. It's nobody's fault, but we as a society have to get a hold of the issue and support people and not look at it as it's their fault or blame them or shame them. You know, you're a 40-year-old man and you have a high school diploma and you read below a fifth or sixth grade level. That's not your fault. What happened? What was going on in that school system, in your family life? Um, so that's the issue. This is not about, you know, blame and shame. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about more specifically about what the foundation is doing and some of the innovative work. I know you have, uh, you're embracing technology, which is a, <clears throat> playing a big part, and doing a lot of innovation in this space. So let's talk about some of the things that you're most excited about. Sure. I mean, we're super excited about our brand new strategy that we have just um, sort of solidified with our board, and we'll be rolling that out in 2020. Um, but the first step will be this uh, National Adult Literacy Summit that we're going to have in November, bringing a suite of practitioners and experts and folks in the philanthropic field, again, folks across sectors to help us kind of solve the problem and come up with a call to action plan. So that's sort of our number one thing that we're most excited about. And it's really solidifying our role as a thought leader and a convener. And that's ultimately what Mrs. Bush, the work of this foundation um, has been doing over the past 25 to 30 years. So saying what more, the question is what more can we be doing to, to live out her, her legacy um, and ensure that we stay on our path of promise to ensure that people can read, write, and comprehend. Um, the second thing is around the technology that you raise. Um, we invested a couple of years ago in a global competition to get folks develop apps for us to teach people 
to read wherever they are. So whether they're on a bus or a cab or on the weekends to supplement their classroom-based learning. Mm -hmm. um, we're still testing those apps out um, and we hope to, to be able to scale and replicate um, those learnings and either those particular apps or something that we may create new. I think the point is it's not about the, the particular tool, but that we strongly believe that technology can add value um, to the field of literacy. And the question is, at the Barbara Bush Foundation, we want to make sure how it can add value and then be a real leader and be able to scale that value, yeah. whatever the tool is. Do you find with, and that's a contest, right? The, it's the ex, ex it's, it's, prize? It's over. It's finished. Oh, it's, it's completely finished. finished, yeah. So with, with that, was that an opportunity, too, to get other people involved who might not otherwise have had an understanding of a literacy? Well, technology folks, I mean, people in the app in the app world space is to say, hey, we need your help. Did you know this was an issue? And people said, oh, we had no idea. So bringing in, again, a new sector into the space to understand that this is a real a real issue. Um, and I, quite frankly, I call it a crisis. Yeah. Um, it's a crisis if, if almost 20% of your population can't read, write, or comprehend. Yeah. That's something we need to tackle. You have spent a big part of your career in leadership roles in public health and largely in, pu in public health settings that are focused on women, but that's not where you started. Let's talk about where you started your career mm -hmm. and how we got to this point. Mm -hmm. So I started my career in banking, worked at a large U.S. bank for a couple of years and decided it really wasn't for me. Um, left, took a little bit of a break, moved to the eastern shore of Maryland, which was wonderful. And then looked at graduate school and law school, came back, worked at a think tank here in Washington, D.C., um, did public affairs work, kind of granting work. And then really the real pivot or the milestone for me in my career was applying to Peace Corps and the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Um, so I was a social worker in Mobile, Alabama um, with Catholic Charities, working with the poorest of the poor, the most marginalized, many of whom suffer from literacy issues to this day. And it changed my life. It was the moment where I was able to really connect my soul to my purpose. Um, and so that was the moment for me. And I think, I think all women, I hope, have a moment like I had that you're able to really connect your soul of who you are with your purpose in life. So my purpose in life is completely mission-driven and mission-oriented. So my jobs for me are not my jobs. They are who I am. Um, and so to take on to work in with refugee issues and corporate social responsibility, um, doing lobbying and policy and advocacy work for over a decade, um, and then being blessed to be able to work um, at the State Department under the President Bush's um, Global HIV AIDS Program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, was just such an honor, such a humbling and privileged experience to be able to bring, develop large-scale public-private partnerships um, around that particular crisis and social concern at the moment. And then moving from that to work on global breast cancer work at Susan G. Komen for the Cure. Again, all of these things sort of add up together. They're all mission focused. Mm -hmm. And then to be privileged to recently in the last four years doing a startup for Barbara Streisand around women's heart disease. And now honored to carry on Mrs. Bush's legacy at the foundation around literacy. This is my first time in the education space. Um, and I find it fascinating, but all of these things, I think, led to this moment. I think people look, or women, women and men, I think, look at their careers as a straight line. My career has been windy, lots of turns, but everything built on the next thing. Mm -hmm. And I can see that now. You know, at 20, I couldn't have seen, oh my gosh, I'm a social worker. <laughs> and here I am some, I won't even say, 30 some odd years later, 
I'm working in education, but it paid off because I know about every social program in this country. I know what it's like to live in abject poverty because I've seen it. I've walked that journey. I've walked in those shoes with those folks. And those are some of the very same people that Mrs. Bush believed in, the gift of their lives, that we could affect change, focusing on those same people. So every experience is built towards this experience. And it's always not about the content. So I've gone from banking to social work to breast cancer, to HIV and AIDS, to global health, to refugee issues, to policy, to lobbying. It's about what's the core mission spoke to me at every single moment, and every moment was organic, or organic and authentic for me. It made sense because it tied to what I believe was my call and my purpose. You presumably studied finance. Uh, I did, in undergrad. I double majored in business and public policy. And taking on that first job and deciding after a very short time, even though you had studied and prepared for that, that this was not right for you. How hard was it for you to make that pivot to say, you know what, this is just not working for me? Really hard. It was a drawing. It was a, I mean, it, it might sound trite to women, and I think Oprah talks about this, but sometimes you have this pit in your stomach. You have a gut feeling. And oftentimes, I think as women, we ignore it because that's the way we're raised and we're taught, you know, just you can get through it and Double it'll be down, fine. Keep going. Just keep your head down and keep going. But it wouldn't go away. I mean, I used to go to work at, you know, seven in the morning, come home at nine at night. I mean, you sort of, that's all fine and was prepared to have a huge raise and become a vice president of the bank and just said, you know what, this cannot be my life. And just listen to that voice, that inner voice that you have. The biggest thing I would say to young women is listen to that inner voice. It will not steer you wrong. It will not steer you wrong. Yeah, and so that's what I did. And I'm here today because I've listened to my inner voice all along the way and have been able to live in my own truth and my own path. But for me, it's bigger than, it's bigger than work. And I think that's, that's a huge difference than just viewing things as work. And that's not about anybody else viewing their work as work. But from my perspective, it's more than work. Um, it's a calling. Do you think having that experience very early on in your career helped prepare you to make those pivots each time you've been faced with a particular career juncture? Because that's that was a, hard. That, was, that first one great, was a hard one, right? That's a great question. And the first one was probably the hardest. You, I think you're right. Um, and that it was corporate. And it took a while. I should say the bank actually gave me a sabbatical because they, they were like, no, you're just tired, you know, take some time off. And so it took almost like nine months to actually make the decision because I went away for a summer, I came back, I didn't, I, they gave me all these new interesting fun jobs. You know, I was sort of placed here and there as like the go-to, the fixer. And then even after that, they still couldn't convince me. <laughs> so, so that's when I was able, I think there's something too in the back of my mind to this day, you know, 25, 30 some odd years later, that I go back to that moment is indelible in my mind. That if it doesn't feel right, if you have that inkling, if you have that voice, listen to it. Where does confidence come from for you? We talk about this topic a lot on this podcast. I talk about it in a course that I teach mm -hmm. at American University. When you think about this notion of confidence, of having the chutzpah to just to make that decision for yourself, to really feel good about it, where does that come from for you? 
From me, so that's a great question. For me, I think it comes just from my family and the way I was raised. One, I'm an only child, um, but I was super close to my um, maternal grandparents, very close to them. And having a family that instills in you that you are good, you are worthy, you are the best at what you can do. And if you make a mistake, it's okay. And we still love you. There is nothing like that kind of love, unconditional love from your family, from your parents, from your grandparents. So I think it's fundamental. It's in my DNA. Anything uh, that you can recall, like a specific example to kind of illustrate for us what that looked like that there's so in you. there's just so many I don't even know where to start I think you know when my grandfather passed away I was really close to him my mother's father I was on his bed next to him how when, old were you when he died I was in right after college it was my year after college undergrad um, I was on his deathbed literally he died of pancreatic cancer and I was holding his hand and he gave me his watch which I'm not wearing today but I usually wear it uh, to dress watch and he just he just said, I know that you're amazing and you're wonderful and, and you're going to do great things in your life. And so it's always stuck with me. It's just a very special connection that we had. I'm going to get emotional again all yeah. these years later. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Not trying to make you cry. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly fine if yeah. you do. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about coming into new organizations, an organization that you haven't grown up in, coming in as the leader of this organization or some of the others mm-hmm. that you've come into in a leadership role. How do you how do you do that? What's your advice for someone in coming in in a leadership role or a CEO type role? How do you get a good understanding of the culture, get buy-in from the people who are there, get a good understanding of what's happening and what needs to change and develop your vision? Give us your Kind of assessment of sort of playbook yeah your playbook so, how, how you do this yeah so i think first and foremost is getting to know the staff and the team Who, who's around you what are their skills what are their what's their expertise um how do they operate um finding those people that um that you know and when you go into certain fields whether it's like breast cancer or hiv and aids or something that's highly technical or refugee issues really learning the craft really learning the space so reading a lot you know sitting with experts um, you've got to know what you're talking about so that's those are my my number one and number two things learning your people learning your staff and then learning the issue and then from there you can kind of create okay what's my vision what's my plan where are we going to go what are we trying to do Um, etc I would say to keep it short otherwise we'd be here all day those are the the core things that I sort of hone in on immediately is is the people piece I think people can immediately go to structure and issue and goals, but and they forget about the people. So the people piece is critical because you don't have people, you, you have nothing. Um, and I've been blessed and fortunate, I'll say this in a kind of sort of the young people's way, but I've been really fortunate to always have, and I just realized this a couple of years ago, I've always had what people would call a ride or die person with me. I've always had that in my career and they've either been there or they've or I've hired them and it's made such a difference. I mean just and to this day there are young women that have worked for me that I've mentored and they are my ride or die girls. Um, and so I love that and I strongly suggest that as women we're conscious of that. It's so important. When you talk about this ride or die person, talk about the value that they bring. What 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 yeah. is it that makes that so critical? Mm-hmm. Why has that been so important to you? They get your vision. Number one, 
they also act as translators sometimes to folks that we're all different, right? We're introverts, we're extroverts, we're process people, we're non-process people, we're feelers, thinkers, you know, Enneagram to, you know, all these different personality tests. But as a leader, you can't be an expert in every single personality test. So sometimes that ride or die person acts as a translator for you. But they support you in any and everything that you do. They take you at your best, they take you at your worst. And it's always good to have somebody like that, but also somebody that's going to call you on something that you need called on. Yeah. So, so that tough love. Tough gonna... love. Absolutely. hundred percent. Who else are you relying on for guidance and input? Who's your, who's part of, how do you build your, your kitchen cabinet or your advisors? Who do you turn to in addition to this ride or die person for input and feedback? I think it's, I think for me, there, there's always been one or two kind of ride or die people. But beyond that, I have an executive coach I've had for a couple of years um, in my last few jobs as I've gotten in more senior roles. So one is I strongly advise you get an executive coach or a mentor. Second thing, speaking of, is I've had mentors all along the way, incredible men and women that I've just found along the way. Mentors are absolutely critical, and I call on them all the time for all sorts of things outside of my environment because I think it's really healthy to get um, an outside view. The other thing that I want to raise that's that's maybe a softer thing and and everybody's different, but for me, um, it's prayer and it's my spiritual life. I have I worked for the Jesuits for a decade as their um, person doing refugee work and a key their sort of advocacy person here in Washington D.C. for ten years doing domestic. Um, and global policy work. And they have been just core to my life in addition to doing the Jesuit volunteer program. And so there's a spirituality around St. Ignatius. And so all of that, I call on St. Ignatius. I call on that sort of charism of the Jesuits to, to sort of ground me and keep me going. So that's my North Star um, is my own faith and prayer life and my connection to the Society of Jesus, which the Jesuits are amazing, amazing people. And men and they're still my dearest friends and mentors and so that's that's really been my they've been my rock when you think about setback or failure whatever you want to call it learning experiences which we're trying to teach ourselves to think more about failure as a learning Mm -hmm. experience but talk about your perspective in dealing with setbacks Mm -hmm. dealing with failures and Mm -hmm. how you help coach your team around things Mm -hmm. like that so let me segue a little bit to the, the Jesuit piece um, that's so important to me. So for over almost 25 years, I've been doing an annual silent retreat. And that's something that um, was really hard for a lot of people to do. Um, it's about 10 days long, meaning you're in total silence for 10 days. For 10 days. Yes. And you only have, there's a methodology and a pedagogy to it. It's what St. Ignatius did. And you only have, you only speak to your spiritual director um, once a day for about 45 minutes. Um, and you go through a whole sort of program during that period of time. I've also done a 30-day retreat, which means you're signed for an entire month for wow. 30 days wow. with one or two days off. So it grounds me. So when there's setback and failure, I go to this place out in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. I've been doing it for 25 years. I've gone to a few other places. But that's what grounds me annually. I do that every single year. Wow. So that's how I deal with my setbacks cumulatively or my self-doubt or my worry, or my concern, or any moment or movements that are huge in my life, all go through the lens of silent retreat once a year. What do you do in the intervening period? Like, What are the tools and techniques mm-hmm. that you're learning 
during that annual period that you can then utilize mm -hmm. throughout the rest of the year. Well, it helps you reframe things. It helps you kind of reset um, wherever you are. And sometimes it gives you clarity around one particular solution. But from a day-to-day -day perspective, I think, look, we all struggle with, we're all human, we're all vulnerable. We all struggle with what to do, lack of confidence, you know, oh, I made this decision, oh, maybe it wasn't the right decision. We all do that. I think one, as I get older, is just owning it and letting it go. Mm -hmm. And that's just that's just a process thing. That's just taking time to learn to sort of let it let it go. Is it practice? You just get better with. Practice. I think you just get better with the, you get better with age. It's like <laughs> fine wine, practice and age. I'm gonna say, but also I think I I have some of those same mentors I still lean on for this stage in my life that helped me through those moments. I loved that there was a recent interview earlier this week with Meghan Markle, and she said, thank you for asking. Yes. I mean, it was just so perfect. I bring it up because for me, I think a lot of women, you just, you sort of go ahead, you prove your worth, you're successful, you land the plane on whatever job you're doing or whatever the project is, but people don't ask you. They really don't. Um, and I'd love to be asked more how I'm doing. And I think the better that I'm doing, the better um, I can be for my staff, for my team, for my board, everything, right? So I think I do that with my team, but I think as the leader, it's hard to get that, that feedback. Um, yeah. and, and I think you have to, for me, I get it from retreat, I get it from my own spiritual director, and I get it from my mentors. But you have to be really confident conscious that you're not getting it or that you're dealing with something and how do you again your point about practice my practice now is to share it with somebody that's how you deal with it you share it as Megan so beautifully did this week she shared it when she made that very simple cogent comment thank you for asking because she was sharing it and that's that is such a beautiful example of the practice that you just raised. Yeah. It showed, too, a certain comfort with vulnerability, mm -hmm. I thought, in that she was open to acknowledging that things might not have been 100% okay. And to your point about people not asking, I wonder what's your thought about the fact that sometimes we work so hard, especially as women, to present a very, you know, very perfectly curated front, Instagrammable <laughs> pictures, you know, we have to look and be, and and that we may not be as open and authentic in our sharing, and therefore that may be why people are not inclined to ask, because why would they? Everything looks so perfect right. on the outside. Right. If you don't share, they don't know, right? right? I mean, how are people supposed to know when we're all buttoned up, right? Um, I think that's that's the biggest takeaway for me is that she was vulnerable. And in fact, to the practice point, the older I get, the more I'm able to be vulnerable. That kind of vulnerability with my grandfather or the vulnerability with the Jesuits. Um, to have that be more in our daily life, yeah. in my daily life, is yeah. to be more vulnerable. You, it makes us stronger. Yeah, it does. Not weaker, stronger. It's the reverse effect. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And it opens up those lines of communication in a way that I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's really, it gives your staff more comfort mm -hmm. in coming to you, our teams more comfort in mm -hmm. sharing and being, being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 
a moment ago, you you learned a lot about reframing from this practice. What did you mean by reframing? Um, it's it's how you look at the question or the you might look at it from ego, right? We all have egos. You can look at it from an ego perspective or you can look at it from a staff member's perspective, or you can look at it from an agnostic perspective. So always kind of looking at the layers of how you view a problem, but in spiritual terms, you look at it, you look at it in a very different way, because if you quiet your mind, your soul, your own being tells you what the answer is, if you stop talking and you get out of your head sometimes, you get the answer, you actually get the answer. And sometimes we're in this like crazy world, the TV's on and the radio and the Twitter and the all these things going on. My biggest advice is quiet time, is quiet time, alone time, particularly for women. You have to take, and I'm not talking about going to Pilates, I'm not talking about going to yoga, I mean actual just sitting and being. That is the gift that the Jesuits have given to me, is when you do that, your whole being changes. Just being quiet. Yeah. I assume you're a reader. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a safe assumption. Yeah. So I would imagine that you draw a lot of strength from the Bible because you've talked a lot about your faith. Um, what's the book that's most shaped your life and perspective? The book in the Bible? Well, just any book, any book. Well, John would be, which is really hard for most, again, people that are of the Christian faith. But I love it. I, it but tell me it, why it resonates with me um, because John is challenging. It's always it's a challenging gospel. It's not so easy and straightforward and soft and it doesn't have as many happy stories. But I think through John, you're able to actually really quiet. John forces you to like quiet yourself more and put yourself into the gospel, put yourself into Jesus's experience through John's story of Jesus's life. So I love it because of the challenge of John. That's just who I am. That's my personality. I love the challenge. Yeah. Um, books, everything from John Grisham to all the way to Hedy's to Shakespeare when I was growing up to Fitzgerald, all the way to, I mean, there's no Toni Morrison, Wow. Maybe something you've read more recently that you were that you, you that you're recommending to everyone. These are hard because we have this huge gala coming up and we're reading all six books. You know what? I'm going to say Jean Case most recently, mm. Be Fearless. Yeah. Um her Be Fearless book and and so much of my life has been about that struggle to be fearless. And her whole premise is about you make mistakes, but you learn from those mistakes and you keep going. And in some ways, that's the spiritual story and the spiritual, my spiritual journey and the, the, the Jesuit journey that I've had really resonates with, for me, um, with Jean's book, Be Fearless. I encourage everybody to read it. It's amazing, particularly women. So your spirituality also is something that you turn to when you are afraid. All the time, every day. Yeah, I mean, I meditate every day, I pray every day, I do readings, but afraid or happy, it's both. It's not just, I think people think that you just pray when you're afraid or you're scared or there's a problem. No, prayers all the time. It's the good and the bad. I think that's really important. Yeah. When you think about, I'm bouncing around mm -hmm. a bit here, um, but I want to dig into this notion of mentorship that mm -hmm. you mentioned before. And that's so incredibly important, but you probably have this experience just like I do, 
where someone will come up to me that I don't have a relationship with and say, you know, would you mm-hmm. please be my mentor? Mm-hmm. And while that's lovely and flattering, I'm not, I'm not sure that, that they're necessarily getting the point of what at least I think of mentorship to be. Talk about your perspective on mentorship mm-hmm. and what advice you would give to our listeners that are maybe a little less experienced who are looking for mentors but not quite sure how to start mm-hmm. with that journey. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I think mentors kind of show up in your life. Sometimes they're right in front of you and you don't realize it. That's my number one point on mentorship. Oftentimes, I think we actually go to look, quote unquote, for mentors when they're right in front of you. So for me, the mentors I've shared with you is I haven't gone out to find a mentor. They've been in front of me. They've been in my walk of life. They've been in my workplace or they've been a partner. So I have a number of mentors that turns out they were one step removed from the environment that I was in. So, you know, in the early days, my boss at Citibank, she was kind of a mentor, sort of my first mentor. She was just this amazing, young, full of life woman. So she, organically, she was a mentor. So I just started viewing her that way. I didn't have to ask her or make it into this formal thing. But you know what you do with mentorship too? You just, you pay attention. My second word of advice is to pay attention who's in front of you. So mentorship can be quiet, but it also can, it can be quiet and it can be right in your face. You don't have to ask, you don't have to force it. The other mentor was this nun in Mobile, Alabama at Catholic Charities. She was amazing. She was a mentor just for being. The way she would act, do, think, be, treat people. She was a mentor. So remember mentors sometimes are right in front of you. Um, some of my current mentors that are men and women were former partners. They're big executives at you know Fortune 25 companies because I did a partnership with them or I did a project with them and we developed a friendship. But then I call them all the time for advice and it's just become organic and natural without sort of being forced. And they know they're my mentors. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's organic and it's authentic. Do they look to you for advice and counsel as well? Oh, 100%. I mean, I have so it's a, a relationship. It's a relationship. I have a woman who I met years ago, a big company, a Hollywood executive. And, you know, she'll call me for advice. I call her advice. I just saw her recently, a couple weeks ago when I was in L.A. And it's just, they're all just still there. And they say, you know, we all comment and say, you know, British will always be in our life, in my life. And I think the same for them. So that's my big advice on mentorship is sometimes people are right in front of you. And you can just pick up the phone and call and you create the dynamic without needing it to be so forced or obvious or by the book, I would say. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about feedback and learning to hear feedback that can be negative, constructive, you know, and knowing how to tell the difference between something that's really going to be useful feedback to you versus something that's just criticism. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes it can be hard for some of us, and I think young women in particular, as you're just launching your career, it can be hard to differentiate between constructive versus negative. Mm -hmm. What do you listen to? What do you not listen to? What's your advice on feedback? Well, one is you got to listen to all of it, right? That's that's the first thing is the big thing is I think when you're younger, you tend to want to just sort of shut down and sort of just, okay, I'm going to poo-poo that person or I'm just going to put my earplugs in and no, 
you listen to all of it. And then I think one of the things the Jesuits teach you is about discerning. You have to discern what you heard. So how do you sit down, write it down? Another thing about feedback is write things down. Old school, either type it in your computer or just use a good old fashioned pen and paper <laughs> and write it down. And then sometimes walk away so that you clear your head and you come back to it with fresh eyes, so to speak. And then you can discern, is it positive, is it negative? Can I do it, can I not do it? Is this person, is this personal? The other thing is women, everything can be personal sometimes. It's not always personal. And sometimes it can be personal, but the older you get, you, you need the skills to discern when it's personal and when it's not. The other thing I think is sometimes we doubt ourselves and think that we say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't personal, when things are. There are times when we have to stand up for ourselves. So I think for young, for all women, we have to discern the feedback and decide when we have to stand up for ourselves. Because I think men do that much more than we do. They, they discern what the feedback is. And then if somebody's wrong, we have to be able to say, you know what, you're wrong, or I don't agree with that. I think it takes us longer to get to that point of standing up around the feedback if it's if it's wrong or it's misplaced or it's inappropriate. I find that sometimes we as women can take that feedback too personally. Mm-hmm. That we can, it can become something that is about our value mm-hmm. as opposed to something that is designed, hopefully if it's constructive, is designed to make you better. Better. So what's your advice for learning how to hear it in the spirit in which it's intended? Yeah. So again, I go back to the writing. I I just, there's something, once you write it down, sometimes the dust settles on its own if you pay attention to what you're writing and you go, no, wait a minute, that actually was a good idea. It just wasn't my idea, right? So I think the the writing it down. Um, It's also, I hate to say this, Laura, but it's experiential. It's the word you used earlier. It's just practice. You can't just, you can't force things. This is an area where it truly is practice. And I think when you meditate or do yoga or or whatever your thing is or your quiet time, you are better able to hear what is truly being said. Again, that quieting the mind helps clarify whether it's personal or not. I hope I answered your question. You did. You totally answered my question and probably the one that I'm about to ask you. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a sort of distilled single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra. You have already given us amazing advice, but if you had to point to one thing, what would yours be? <laughs> Going on silent retreat. That's it. That's that's my my special sauce. That's the magic the the sort of sprinkles on top of my life for me. How do you come, when you come back from that experience? Floating on air. (laughs) There's just nothing like it. You must have a lot to say (laughs) after a silent, yes. Not really, because you get so silent, and then it's like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm good. (laughs) Um, But it's the gifts you get from having a clear head and being able to think clearly. You can discern. You can make, you make better decisions. All of it, it's all tied together. It's not one, look, we are whole people. And the, the thing that the Jesuits teach you is you're a whole person. So your spiritual, your personal, your professional life, it's all inextricably linked. And so that's what I would tell my 20-year-old self is remember it's, it is connected. 
I think society tells us it's disconnected. It's not. And the more we come into our whole, the better we are in our work environment. And the better we are as a whole person because it's not disconnected from the other parts of your life. Yeah, it's beautiful. British, thank you so very much. This was really an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate it. To learn more about British, I've included some links in the show notes along with some photos from today's visit. I'm delighted to add British Robinson to our growing list of incredible women who are leading, inspiring, and having a positive impact on others and on the world every single day. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. 